Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. First question we have in today's class is from a student who says, a patient is in a long-term care facility and received a dish with something they are allergic to and expresses that they are upset. You as the dietitian go to the patient to make them feel better. Why? And so options they put with this question are A, to make the wrong action into a right one, B, to avoid having a lawsuit on the facility, C, to defend your employees, or D, to figure out the solution to the problem. So this is kind of like a situational management slash domain too, because it is allergy a little bit too. And so for this, I would kind of take a step out and remember that for the exam, we're always looking for the best option. And so the concern here is that, right, this is an event that should never happen, right? It should never be that a patient is receiving something that they are allergic to. So like right away, I'm thinking like, how did it happen? Where like, I'm thinking like QI, six sigma, like how could this happen? Was there not documentation? So I want to be picking an option that's really going to work to make sure that this does not happen again. Because likely it seems like the patient didn't eat it, but right you want to make sure it's not going to happen again. So with this one, I would go with the trying to figure out the solution to the problem. And the problem isn't necessarily like that this specific patient got the allergen, but it's how could an allergen get on a plate, right? And this is where you might kind of go into a QI project, you know, do some investigation where you're like, was this an allergy that was documented? If it was yes, you know, how is it put on the train? Maybe we need a better system of how we're documenting, how we're documenting the, you know, allergens on the tray. Was it missed? Do we need an employee training? But trying to fix the issue, and that is more of our like QI continuous improvement, where we're thinking that, you know, it's not just that, oh, Dana was working on the train line, it's her fault, but how do we fix this? How do we make sure that this isn't gonna ha- this isn't gonna happen? This isn't going to happen again. Okay. Next one we got is from a student who is saying they had recently had an exam attempt and they got a 24 and they were saying, with the holidays coming up, I don't know if I'm going to keep studying in December. Would, what would you recommend? Keep studying to retain all the information or wait for January to continue studying? Is a break worth it? And you guys know whenever I give kind of the study advice, I always have to give the PSA that this, you know, it really is individual and the best way I can give you advice is that it's tailored to you, you know, from doing a one-on-one session with me. But I wanted to talk about it in today's class because this is a situation that happens right around this time where we're in right, right about in the spring of the holidays And it can be difficult because you're saying, you know, maybe I have a trip planned with my family, my friends and family are going to be, am I really going to be 
studying. And I think, you know, there's two different camps to be in. And you can, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, you know, I'm kind of feeling this too. Think about which one is best for you, right? So you have one camp where if you are the person who is feeling like really, really burnt out, right? You're like, oh, I just, like I, my mental health is deteriorating. I just want to be able to enjoy the holidays, focus on that. And you know that having a break from the material is going to be good for you because you're going to come at it after Christmas with fresh eyes. Then you are the student that I recommend. Yeah, take a little break. And this can be so helpful for a lot of people where if you have just been like nonstop studying, nonstop stressing, you need a little break. Now, if you're in this other camp where if you're like, you know what, Dana, oh, I just got a 24. I feel like I'm so close. I can taste it. And I'm coming out of the exam really feeling like I know like, oh, it was the math or it was the situational and like, oh, I'm so close to get it. You are not then the person that I'm recommending to take a break because you're the type of person that I'm like, you are so close. Okay, you now know what you need to focus on, you know, and you're ready to kind of go back at it. Then I would recommend you take it as soon as possible because you are so close. And 24, and you guys have probably heard me say this before, 24 is the worst score because you are so close. You know, so think about if this is you, think about, you know, are you in the camp where you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to, you know, reassess, keep the motivation high, keep going. And that, if you're in that camp or want to be in that camp, that is when doing a one-on-one tutoring can be really, really helpful. Because like I said, I can give you tailored advice. We can make a plan. We can get you in the course. We can get you doing a study schedule. But if that's you, I wouldn't take a break for Christmas. If you're in the other group where you're telling me, I'm so burnt out. I just need to reset. I know this is going to be good for me. I just need to be around my friends and families, you know, have a gingerbread cookie, relax. Then I would tell you take a break. So might not have answered right the original question from a student of should they take a break? Because, you know, I don't know them. But those are the type of things that that I would I would be thinking about. So some side tip. Okay. Next to TPN. So what percent of total energy from fat should be provided through an elemental or hydrolyzed formula um, to prevent essential fatty acid deficiency? Remember, essential fatty acid deficiency can be abbreviated as EFAD. So this one, there's two different ways they can ask about it. One, they can say what percent of total total, calories, total energy from fat which is the three to 4% needs to be from essential fatty acids. That's our linoleic, alpha linoleic, omega-3, omega-6. Verse, they can also say how many grams of fat is it? So if they're talking about percent total calories, like three to 4% has to be from these essential um, fatty acids. If they're saying how many grams of fat does someone need, you know, each week from their TPN, that's going to be, 50 grams twice a week. And this one, whenever I talk about it in my TPN class, I always get the question where people are like, Dana, how could people never have fat? You would be surprised the amount of people who do not have fat um, for a variety of reasons. I've had patients on TPN who are like, I don't want to be fat. So I don't want any fat. 
I've had patients who are convinced that they are nauseous with the fat. Um, there's a lot of different reasons why sometimes people have limited fat. You cannot have a patient be on TPN with no fat, though, unless they are going to eat their essential fatty acids. And usually if you're on TPN, you can't eat. But it can, it's, you know, a situation that you might be like, oh, that's so weird. Nope. Can happen, happens all the time. Okay, next one, another one for me on the insulins. And insulin tends to be a tricky topic on the exam. Remember, for your insulins, you want to think about when would you use them and then think about onset time and duration. So this one says, what function does basal insulin perform? We have, it main, A, it maintains blood sugar that is too high after meals. B, it evens out slight increases in blood sugar that occur after eating snacks. C, it evens out slight increases in blood sugar due to action of glycogen. Or D, it keeps blood glucose from becoming too low in a person who uses an insulin pump. So with this, like any question, I would first kind of pause and go, hmm, what do I know about basal insulin? So anytime you're thinking basal, one of the things you want to think of is that's kind of like baseline. The other place we hear basal insulin, it, not basal insulin, but um, basal is basal metabolic rate, which means like how much energy am I using when I'm doing nothing? So you want to kind of think of your basal, basal anything, basal insulin, basal energy is like for when you're doing nothing. So already I'm like, okay, basal insulin is for when I'm doing nothing, not eating, doing nothing. And where does my insulin come? Not my insulin. Where does my blood sugar come from when I'm doing nothing? My liver, right? Breaking down glycogen. So already I'm connecting those dots and I'm like, okay, basal insulin is to cover my glycogen. So I go back. A, it's talking about meals. N using basal for after meals, no. B, it's saying for after snacks, no, right? I just said it's not for those things. It's for glycogen. Then C, right? Oh, perfect. Evens out slight increases in blood sugar due to action of glucagon, right? Which breaks down glycogen back to sugar. Perfect. But let me just double check it's not D. Well, D says the exact opposite of what insulin does, right? It says it keeps blood sugar from becoming too low. Insulin decreases blood sugar. So this one, basal insulin function would be to help even out those slight um, blood sugar spikes from our glucagon, breaking down our glycogen. So that's a really great one to kind of make sure you could also answer for intermediate, rapid, as well as well as regular too. All right, next question we had is, a student was saying, for biochemistry, what do I actually need to know? And so biochemistry is definitely a tricky one. And until January um, 2022, I didn't even have a biochemistry class because it's such a small part of the exam. But what I was finding was because a lot of us have like this residual like ah, biochemistry trauma, it was a really great class for me to add because one of the things I want you guys to see with my classes, with the podcast, with the material you get from me is that, you know, a lot of time we spend time in our internship and undergrad 
learning really complex topics, but never really learning them to the point that we can apply. So a lot of my classes are really to give you that understanding finally, so you know how to use the material and then apply it to practice questions. So with the biochemistry, I always like to say you don't need to be Albert Einstein about it, but there's a lot of topics in here, right? Acid base, you're also thinking about all the hormones, the enzymes, Krebs cycle, glycolysis. It's a, pre it's a pretty big topic, but a great thing to be doing is to take the biochem review class because it's going to give you a whole overview of biochem, but then also it now includes a metabolism practice question class. That's a full hour, so 90 minutes biochem review, and then you have an hour-long metabolism practice question class, and that's a really great class if you get stressed out about like biochem and Krebs cycle and all those things too, because it's going to kind of lay out what you need. So I would definitely head to uh, my website. That will be below in the show notes so you guys can find it. Okay, next one we have um, from a student who says, I found this question. Um, CF patients are likely to have a deficiency of what? Right, so options are folic acid, selenium, vitamin A, vitamin C. And when you're thinking about the vitamins, again, huge topic, but when you're thinking about the vitamins, you want to be thinking about, well, what would be the mechanism that you would be deficient? So you want to make sure when you're studying M&T, you're also linking in vitamins and minerals, also labs, meds, seeing things multiple times from multiple angles so when you're getting questions, you're not stuck. So CF is cystic fibrosis, and what I'm thinking about there is I'm like, okay, well, what vitamins and mineral deficiencies am I worried about CF? I'm really worried about sodium, right? Because with CF, their chloride channels are dysregulated, so they're losing a lot of salt, right? Sodium chloride in their sweat. And then the other thing is fat-soluble vitamins, but they have pancreatic enzyme insufficiency. So of these ones, they're going to be highest risk of that vitamin A deficiency because if they're not taking their pancreatic enzymes and they're not taking um, their multivitamins with their fat-soluble vitamins, they're very likely to be, to be deficient. Okay. Next one we have is one I like to ask, and you'll see it. I think it's in one of the situational practice question class, one quite similar. And this one falls into the category of where it's regular math, but a lot of the time we are getting bamboozled by math just because we see a math question and go, oh, of course, I hate the math. So definitely if that's you, I highly recommend taking the math bootcamp class because it's going to help take the scariness away by walking you through the equations and then helping you to apply, and then helping you to apply them. I'm losing my pen over here. Uh, okay, so... Let's look at this. So a client is trying to restrict fat intake to less than 30% of total calories at each snack and meal. Which of the following would meet this requirement? And we have calories and then comma grams of fat. So the first thing I'd be thinking about is highlighting what is my unit. Because you guys know, keep your units tight and get it right. So my unit is total calories from fat. So when I'm doing my math, I want to have calories from fat over total calories. So 
So the first mistake a lot of people are going to make are potentially dividing calories by grams of fat because that's just the way it's set up. Another one could be, you know, correctly putting fat on top but not finding the calories. So let's just walk through this. So A is 80 calories with 3 grams of fat. Okay, well, 3 times 9 is 27 divided by 80. That's 34% too high. Okay, next one. Four grams of fat, four times nine is 36, divided by 110 calories, 33%, still too high. Next one is five grams of fat times nine is 45 calories, over 120, 37 grams of fat. And I still want to check D, even though it's the only one left. 4 grams of fat times 9 is 36 over 130 calories, and that's 28%. So this one you have to kind of read it carefully and then just stay organized too, and kind of going line by line is important. Next one we have is student was saying, I got, you know, I saw this question, but I'm not sure of the explanation. And remember, that is one of the best things about posting questions on the Facebook page is that we're going to go over the whole explanation. And I like this question a lot. This is like a biofilm question. So which of the, which of the following processes occur in response to increase in plasma glucose concentration? So I have A, glycogen synthesis occurs. B, glyconeogenesis is stimulated. C, insulin decreases, or D, we have glycogen lysis takes place. And this student was saying, it says the correct answer is A, I know when there's an increase in blood glucose concentration, that means the insulin is decreased in the blood, or that glycogen synthesis occurs, but how do I choose between them? So again, it's always super helpful when you guys tell me why you're confused, because how this student is reading the question wrong is they are saying, right, so the answer of this is glycogen synthesis would occur because if I have high blood sugar, I'm going to store it. But the question, the question saying, right, what would occur in response? So in response, we're going to store the, like, the glucose as glycogen because it's too high, we don't need it. Now, if this question was reworded and it said which of the following is likely happening when there's an increase in blood glucose concentrations, that's when we'd be saying, well, if there's high blood glucose concentrations, we probably do not have enough. We do not have enough insulin. And this is how a lot of people are getting stuck on the exam with topics you know about, but the application gets wonky. And um, for those of you who joined the metabolism practice question class we did last week, I showed you guys how they do this with two different acid-base questions slightly flipped. And it's talking about, okay, primary response, you know, verts, you know, thinking about what's happening right now, right, with like respiratory acidosis versus how the body is going to react to it too. So you have to watch you have to watch the wording of it. Um, you have to watch the wording of it too. Okay. 
Next one we have is nitrogen balance. And you guys know I love a nitrogen balance question in my classes because it's a topic that people really kind of rush through, but it's something to really make sure you're watching. So the question is, a patient is on a calorie count consuming 65 grams of protein. Total urea nitrogen is seven. What is their nitrogen balance? So with nitrogen balance, you want to think about why. And this is really helpful with a lot of the equations of thinking about the why. Because if you're thinking about the why and you're understanding the whole picture, it just makes everything fall into place. It allows your recall to get better. So with nitrogen balance, I'm looking at a two-step equation. The first half of the equation is how many grams of nitrogen am I eating? Well, 65 grams of protein divided by 6.25 grams of protein per one gram of nitrogen tells me I have 10.04 grams of nitrogen coming in. And then I compare it to, well, it's coming out. And it's our urinary nitrogen, which is always given. But then we add plus four. That's a constant to say, well, I'm probably measuring most of it, but maybe I'm missing some. So that's going to give us 11 grams out. And then we're comparing. So 10.4 minus 11. And that's telling us a negative nitrogen balance of negative 0.6. So this is telling me we're in a state of positive. And I always will mention the the conversion there that it's 6.25 grams of protein for every gram of nitrogen because you're going to need that to answer like um, the calorie to nitrogen balance question that you'll see throughout the exam. So having that level of understanding is super helpful. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.